Well, in our time of study today, we're going to be looking again at Romans chapter 12. Today, we're going to be focused in on Romans 12, verse 13. Uh, if you want to go ahead and start turning there, I invite you to do so. The way I understand this passage, uh, this chapter of Romans chapter 12, um, Verse 13 is the closing verse of this third section of the chapter. You see, the first section is comprised of verses 1 and 2. And those verses focus in on uh, replacing the forms of worship under the Old Covenant, that sacrificial system that we read about so much in the Old Testament. It replaces that with a new type of worship. And Jesus spoke about this in his conversation with a Samaritan woman in John chapter four. And in that conversation, Jesus made this statement. He said, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. And so Paul takes this idea of worshiping in spirit and in truth and he expounds on that idea with this picture of being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable response to him for his grace. And it is our spiritual act of worship. This daily consecration of our lives brings about the transformation that God wants us to experience individually. And it enables us to know and understand what his will is, is what it tells us there in verses 1 and 2. So with a combined emphasis on commitment to and dependence upon God, Paul has set out for us the basis for responsible living and for the specific teaching that follows. The second section begins there in verse 3 of chapter 12 and it goes through verse 8. And this second section focuses in on the interaction of believers with one another within the body of Christ, within the church. Now known primarily for its teaching on spiritual gifts, uh, these six verses lay out both an attitude and a disposition that believers should have toward one another. Namely, a spirit of humility and a spirit of faith where they are dependent upon the Lord to work in and through them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in the third section, beginning in verses 9 and going through verse 13, uh, Paul begins a call for this genuine love. And we've been talking about this authentic, genuine love that Paul calls us to. You see on the screen, I shared this slide with you last week. These are some of the things that we find here in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Uh, that love is holding to what is good. Love is being devoted. It's putting others first. It's serving others. It's being hopeful. It's being patient. It's remembering to pray. And finally, today, we're going to be looking at this idea of love as being generous and love is showing hospitality. Well, Dr. James Gunn explains that the implied imperative of the initial call for love is expanded in this series of participial clauses. 
And these parallel 1 Thessalonians 5 as well as 1 Peter chapter 3. And that's why I encouraged you last week to memorize 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 16 through 18. And I know all of you did that, right? Um, I think we should be able to, to get at least the first two of those. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Now, if you didn't memorize those two verses, I want to encourage you to do that in the next 20 seconds because you can. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ for you. So, as we considered last week, Romans chapter 12, verse 12, we looked at it as an explanation or a demonstration of genuine, authentic love. And so in much the same way this morning, we're going to consider verse 13 as an explanation or a demonstration of genuine, authentic love. This third section of verses in Romans 12 is directed more at the internal relationships within the body of Christ. But as we will find out next week when we start studying in verse 14, verses 14 through 21, the focus seems to change in this fourth section of chapter 12 in that it focuses more on the relationships with people outside the church uh, all, all across our world. Um, and that leads into the section in chapter 13, which we won't be studying in this series. But 13 verses 1 through 7 focuses in on submitting ourselves to the governing authorities. And so it's expanding this concept of love, how we should treat one another. Then we'll look at how we should treat those in the world. And then it goes on to talk about how we should respond to government. Now, before we get into the text today, I think it's important for us to understand some of the things that were happening in the city of Rome uh, at the time that Paul was writing this letter to them. And so the first thing I want us to think about is the, the cultural or historical context. Now, what do I mean when I say cultural or historical context? Well, the cultural historical context is not the same as the textual context that we talked about last week. You remember we, we looked at that chart that showed how to discover the immediate context of the text, and then from there you go on to discover the next larger context so that we can understand a text within its context. All right, and we looked at that, but this is, this is not exactly the same but rather this is looking at some of the other things that we need to understand in order to truly understand a text well you see when considering the historical context of a new testament letter there are several aspects that need to be explored things such as the date of the writing uh, or or who it is that wrote the letter um, also what was the purpose in writing or what's going on? What's the occasion that's happening in this? Who will be receiving this letter and what's the background of those recipients? Um, 
the location of where they were is important because different places had different things going on. So all of these things, plus many others, go in to make up this idea of cultural and historical context. We have to understand what the letter meant to the original recipients because the Bible cannot mean what it never meant. So we understand what it meant and then we're able to make application to what it means in our current context. So I'm not going to look at all of those things this morning for the book of Romans, but I do want us to think about a couple. The first is the date of writing and the place of writing. So according to research, Paul probably wrote this letter to the church at Rome from the city of Corinth during his third missionary journey. And that would put it at about AD 57. Um, According to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, which uh, is the middle of Paul's second missionary journey, Paul met a couple in the city of Corinth named Aquila and Priscilla. And when he met them, he discovered that they were exiles from the city of Rome. They were Jews that had been kicked out of the city of Rome. And so Paul met them in Corinth, and then now he's back on his third missionary journey in Corinth in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. And once again, he's together with Aquila and Priscilla. And so he would have been able to learn a lot from them about the work of the ministry that was going on there in Rome. But we have to understand the history of what was going on there in Rome as well. Because you see, there were many, many Jews living in Rome. That some estimate 40 to 50,000 Jews. But almost all of those came to Rome as slaves. You see, if you go back uh, to 62 BC, which would have been almost 100 years earlier. Actually, it's more than 100 years. Let me do my math right. Over 100 years later, uh, or earlier, let me start over. How's that sound? If you go back to 62 BC, uh, over 100 years before the time of the writing of this book, we find that Emperor Pompey, when he invaded Palestine, he took many Jews back to Rome to serve as slaves there. And so this, you know, after a hundred years, uh, people tend to propagate. And so this group of Jews became a very large group of Jews. And the interesting thing is, is if, you're, if you study from Romans chapter 15 and 16, the end of this letter by Paul, you'll see that he addresses a lot of people that are in the church there in Rome. Um, people that he, some he knew of, some he knew personally, but he's addressing all of these. Well, the number of slave names among those greeted in chapter 16 is perhaps more than 14 out of the 24. And so our, the church here in Rome was consisted of many who were still enslaved to Rome. Now, according to the Roman historian uh, Suetonius, the Jews who were followers of Christ were constantly causing disturbances in Rome. And as a result of that, in 
49 AD, about eight years before Paul wrote this letter, Emperor Claudius expelled or exiled all of the Jews from the city of Rome. Now imagine this if you would. Um, your family has been living in a particular place now for over 110 years. And you're all, all of a sudden exiled from that place. You're sent away and you have to go start somewhere new. I doubt you had time to pack or the money to take all your stuff with you. You, you were just kicked out because Emperor Claudius didn't like your people. Well, that's what happened. In fact, that's what we find out happened to Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. And so they were kicked out. They went to the city of Corinth, which is on the next uh, peninsula over in the Mediterranean Sea. And they, that's where Paul originally met them. But Aquila and Priscilla weren't the only ones that dealt with this. All of the Jews were exiled. Well, that was A.D. 49. By A.D. 57, many of these Jewish believers had returned back to Rome, to their homes, uh, the homes of their family. Why were they able to do that? Well, it was because Emperor Claudius was poisoned by his wife so that their son, Nero, could become the emperor. That happened in A.D. 54. And so by A.D. 57, you have many of these people that are returning to Rome. But in ten or eight years, what has happened to their homes? What has happened to all of their possessions? Well, they're gone. Other people are living there. And so you find all of these Jewish believers returning to Rome who have no place to live, no support. That gives us an understanding of what we're about to read in chapter 12, verse 13. The socioeconomic crisis was a part of the motivation for what Paul wrote here. Let's read again. As we did last week, we're going to read this paragraph uh, beginning in verse 9, reading through verse 13 of Romans chapter 12. The Bible says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality the uh, first main point at, now that we've talked about the context first main point that I want us to look at is that love is sharing in the needs of the saints love is sharing in the needs of the saints now in in verse 13 the ESV translates this as contributing or contrib contribute, now I'm starting to speak like my friend Darlene. Contribute to the needs of the saints. So is this better understood as a contribution? Or is this better understood as sharing? Which word encapsulates the original meaning best? 
Well, when you look at the original Greek text, you discover that this word that is translated as contributing is the verbal form of a well-known Greek word. And probably you don't know a lot of Greek words, and I understand that. You don't have to. But there is a Greek word that you've probably heard before. And that Greek word is koinonia. Have you heard that before? Some of you? It's this idea of fellowship. In fact, a lot of churches today find it really cool that they want to call um, you know, a, a ministry of fellowship or, or their community groups like we have. They'll call those koinonia groups because they like that word so much. Well, the definition of koinonia is fellowship, association, community. And it, then it goes on, and the final definition is the share which one has in anything or their participation. You see, the focus of this word, koinonia, is on the interconnectedness of the people referenced. It's about our connections with one another. You know, I've often seen churches transliterate this word and use it to call their you know, refer to their small groups. But this idea of koinonia, that's what we need to be experiencing in those groups. It's that community. It's that sharing that we have. And I think some of you that have gotten connected with your community group, that's exactly what you're, you are experiencing. You have that fellowship, that sharing. Well, here in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, the verbal form of that word koinonia is used. And the idea behind this first phrase is, is not just contributing to the needs, but rather truly sharing in those needs. To come into communion or fellowship with, to become a sharer, to be made a partner in this situation with all of those saints who were in need. Folks, it goes a whole lot further than just throwing money at a problem. It's not just a contribution, but it is sharing in the needs of the saints. It's getting your hands dirty to do whatever it takes to make sure that the needs of their fellow believers were met. Thayer's Greek lexicon says, in defining this idea is to enter into fellowship, to join oneself as an associate, to make oneself a sharer or a partner, so to make another's necessities one's own as to relieve them. In other words, it's not just that we want to help, but we are so committed to doing this that we consider it our own problem. We are a partner in this situation. Well, in his book, Christian Tolerance, Robert Jewett said that this suggests the reference is to taking up the burdens of those deported under Claudius that then return to Rome. And so Paul is saying all these people who are coming back to Rome, you need to share in their needs. So what kind of needs is Paul suggesting that they need to help these believers with? Well, Need here is referring to one's necessities, uh, not merely things that they would like to have, but, but the essentials that they have to have to be able to survive. 
The custom of the early church, if you remember, was to care for the needs of one another by selling all of their possessions and giving it to the church to be able to distribute to anyone who was in need. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 43 and 44. We also, or sorry, 44 and 45. We also see that in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, where they sold their possessions, gave to the church, and everyone, the Bible says, had everything in common. Now, later in Acts, we see Paul journeying to Jerusalem to deliver a benevolent gift to the believers who had fallen on troubled times um, there in Jerusalem. And so the churches from other parts of the world sent money back. And this benevolent ministry is confirmed in, in four of Paul's uh, letters, both to the Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, as well as the letter to the churches of Galatia. He re references this gift that was given back to Jerusalem. So in the early church, there's a lot of history showing that they cared for one another and took care of the needs of one another. So here's the big question. If this is what the Bible teaches they did and, they, and the Bible teaches that we ought to do it too, then how do we decide what to do and what not to do? How do we decide when to help or when not to help? Well, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is speaking with leaders from Ephesus toward the end of his third missionary journey. And he reminds them that when he was with them, he worked with his hands to be able to provide for his needs. And then he reminded them of Jesus' words, which said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul, by his own testimony, said, I worked hard to take care of my essential needs. That's in Acts chapter 20. But writing in Philippians chapter 4, Paul told the church in Philippi that he acknowledged their help and how that they had provided for his needs while he was in other places ministering to other people. Let's look at Philippians chapter 4. If you look at verse 14, it says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Philippians 4.14 it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So what's Paul saying? Which is it? Are we to work hard and provide for ourselves? Or are we to allow others to provide for us? The answer is yes. Both of these things can be true. Paul explained that further as we continue reading there in Philippians chapter 4. If you're still there, if you look on verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift... 
but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So what can we learn from Paul's testimony here in Acts 20 as well as Philippians 4? Well, I think the very first thing that we need to focus on, folks, is verse 19. God will supply all your needs according to his riches that we have in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean we're going to get everything we want. We've talked many times about the fact that the gospel is not about health and wealth and success. But it is about God caring for us and providing everything that we need. So we need to learn that. But you know, we, we should also learn that we should not demand or desire benevolent help. We should not demand nor desire benevolent help, but we should also not refuse that help when it's offered. To demand or desire benevolent help is to be selfish and entitled. And folks, can I just say... um, well, let me, let me acknowledge something real quick. I am so thankful for Pastor David because he is 20 years my uh, junior. Uh, he gets up out of his chair faster when someone knocks on the door. And um, because of that, he handles the lion's share of benevolent requests that we have here at the church. And um, David, I don't know if I've told you or not, but that is a huge help to me. And I know it's not an easy thing. We have people come here all the time asking for help. And you know what? Most of the time, we help them. Um, We may not give them everything they ask for, but we help them. We, We feel that That's what God has called us to do. And and we're able to help them because some of you give very generously to our benevolence fund. Uh, And I don't know who you are, but thank you. Thank you for those gifts. uh, Because it enables us to help people in very special ways when they really, really need it. But to demand benevolent help is to be selfish and entitled. And you know what? There are times where we get those people in here as well. And they're repeat customers. (laughs) You know, some come every couple of weeks. Uh, And so we, we, we don't do everything that they ask. It's wrong to demand or desire help. But folks, to refuse or reject help is to be self-sufficient and proud. And God did not create us to be an island unto ourselves. We need each other. And to say, I would never 
receive help is pride. Notice what Dr. John Townsend said. He said, God doesn't create us to be relationally self-sufficient. He loves us to need each other. I love that. Hear that again. He loves us to need each other. Our needs teach us about love and keep us humble. True self-sufficiency is a product of the fall. And when he says the fall, he's talking about our fall into sin that Adam did for us first in Genesis chapter 3. Self-sufficiency is an American virtue, but it goes against what God is trying to teach us as followers of Christ. We need to be interdependent on one another and dependent upon him. God loves it when we need each other. And when we are in need, it helps us to learn about that love because people are demonstrating it to us. But it also helps us to learn about humility because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, I learned a lot about the emotions of this, this thing that I'm trying to describe to you while I was serving overseas. You know, when we were, when we were cross-cultural missionaries, um, especially living in a developing country, um, we were seen as being extremely rich. And I did not think that that was a fair assessment of my financial status until I realized what an average salary actually looked like. And that's when I realized comparatively, I was very rich. On the other hand, when I returned to the US every three to four years, my sole purpose was to ask people for their money. That's what I did. In one place I was a bank and in the other I was a beggar. And you know, I could not find my identity in either persona. I was not a bank, nor was I a beggar. I was a child of God seeking to be used by him as he saw fit. And so if that meant I needed to go and ask people to help support this ministry and beg for that those finances, then that's what I was to do. But in the same vein, when I got over there, I was not to act like God doling out gifts. No. I wasn't the bank. I wasn't the one that... And unfortunately, there are missionaries that I have seen that did that. So how do we find a balance between those two? Well, I think it what it boils down to is we've got to remember where all of this came from. What did Philippians 4.19 tell us? It is God who supplies all of our needs. And by the way, let's take just a moment to look at Philippians 4 one more quick time because we talk so much about this contextual you know, aspect of understanding a text within its context. Can we look for just a moment at Philippians 4, starting in verse 10, which is 
all about God's provision here, 10 through 19. Notice what he says in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So Paul is saying, I'm so thankful that you started sending offerings again. That's basically what he says. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these people who have revived their concern for me. He goes on. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me everybody in this room probably has heard that last verse did you ever realize that it was talking about our ability to live on whatever god provided us with little or much That's the context. That's the context. That we can live a life when we're poor and we're hungry. A life that honors God. Because it is a life that God gives us strength to live. So folks, wherever you find yourself today. Whether you are able to give and give generously. You know, we just talked about the need for life word and, and the opportunity to give to support this ministry. If you're able to give to that ministry today, that's wonderful. But if you are needing to receive yourself, needing financial assistance or other type of necessities in your life, wherever you find yourself today, you are demonstrating genuine love when you share in the needs of your fellow believers. Doing whatever you are able to do. And don't forget what Jesus taught and said about generosity. It's not about how much you give, but in your willingness to give sacrificially. Mark chapter 12 there's a story about a widow who gave just two small copper coins. And that's all I'm going to say about it because you're going to be studying about that in your community group this week. All right? Give and give sacrificially. Well, let's hurry on because I've taken most of my time on, on the first main point. And so I need to get to the second and last. Good news. Uh, main point and that is love is aspiring to hospitality what do we mean when we refer to hospitality well in an article logan murphy said the word hospitality may bring to mind a hospital or the hospitality industry such as hotels both would be appropriate associations in both hospitals and hotels a guest or a patient is offered a place to sleep and food to eat. That is hospitality. But biblical hospitality, he says, is more than just room and board. 
You know, we find this to be true in many biblical examples that we have of hospitality. I wrote these on the screen so that you could write them down if you want them because I'm going to run through them real fast. In Luke chapter 10, we see the hospitality given uh, to the man that was uh, beaten and left for dead by a Samaritan, no less. Then in the next section of scripture, we see the hospitality that is offered to Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha. And then a few chapters later, Luke chapter 19, we see the same kind of hospitality that is offered by a little, a wee little man uh, named Zacchaeus. After he had trusted in Christ as a savior, he brought Jesus in and brought all of his friends to hear the message of salvation. If you jump ahead to the book of Acts in chapter 16, when Paul went across from Troas over into Macedonia, he got to the city of Philippi and this woman, a wealthy woman, a seller of purple named Lydia, opened her home to Paul and his command companions. Then uh, Paul was arrested because uh, of all that he was all the problems he was causing there in Philippi. And so he was beaten, arrested, and then we see the hospitality of the Philippian jailer after the earthquake that we uh, read about in Acts chapter 16. And so the Philippian jailer cared for Paul and Silas. And then as we talked earlier uh, in Acts chapter 18, when Paul arrived in Corinth, he met Aquila and Priscilla, and they opened their home to him and even let him partner together with them in the same business that they were doing. They were hospitable to him. Over and over again, we find examples of hospitality in Scripture. But you know what? There are also teachings about hospitality. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 8 through 10, we find uh, a, an amazing passage here. Peter wrote, he said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So what does Peter teach us here? He teaches us to love authentically. Entertain joyfully. Don't grumble. And serve gracefully. What a beautiful picture of what he's telling us back here in Romans chapter 12 about how to love genuinely. Peter says it as well. You know, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 tells us, to not neglect hospitality. 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 8 say that being hospitable is one of the qualifications for a pastor. We've got to be hospitable if we want to be qualified as a pastor. So the Bible says we should be hospitable. It shows us examples of being hospitable. What does biblical hospitality look like? Well, the Apostle John wrote a very short and very pointed book, uh, or letter, really, to his dear, dearly loved friend, Gaius. 
And this letter is preserved in our Bibles. Uh, we know it as 3 John. The letter is very short, only 15 verses in total. But John addresses a situation that this otherwise unknown pastor named Gaius is facing in this undisclosed church. We don't really even know where he is. Now, one view of this letter uh, supposes that 3 John was a personal letter. By the way, this is in the ESV study Bible, the notes there. They say that 3 John was a personal letter to Gaius commending the courier of the shipment, Demetrius. In other words, the one carrying the letters to him, uh, to Gaius, uh, 3 John was written to commend Demetrius to him. 2 John was intended to be read aloud to Gaius's church. It was a letter specifically for the church. Um, but 1 John, they are uh, you know, supposing it was a letter for general distribution. A sermon, really, for distribution uh, to, to the, the community at large. Now, this is not a verifiable view, but it helps us to understand what John wrote and why John wrote it. The purpose of John's letter was to commend Gaius for his actions and to condemn Demetrius for his actions. So what did they do? Well, if you read the book of 3 John, and you can do that later, if you read that, you'll find out that Gaius was very hospitable to his brothers, to, to the other believers in Christ. Even though that they were strangers, John said we ought to support people like these. And, and he commended Gaius for doing that. But then he talked about Demetrius later in that same letter. He said Demetrius, on the other hand, um, refused to welcome the brothers. And he even tried to stop those who wanted to help and kick them out of the church. Demetrius had a major problem with strangers. He was being very inhospitable toward them. And so John said to Gaius, he said, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. You know, I think when we think about this idea of hospitality, I think hospitality has transformed over the last 50 plus years. In my lifetime, hospitality has, the, the, the way we understand what hospitality should be has changed drastically. You know, if you go back to 1965 through 1984, if a church was having a visitor pre, visiting preacher in, um, what would happen? Well, this is very simple. The preacher would go to one of the church members' homes and they would sleep there, they would eat there, and stay there as long as they needed to. Right, Brother George? <laughs> Do you know I've known Brother George for 43 years? I've only known his daughter uh, for about uh, 10 years less than that. Well, maybe uh, 34 or something like that. How did I get to know Brother George? Well, he stole my bedroom when I was a child. <laughs> my parents opened their home 
to every visiting preacher that came. Uh, I learned hospitality from my mom and dad. And, you know, so back in when I was a small child, yes, there was a day when I was, um, traveling preachers would stay and they would eat in your homes. But, you know, by the time I got into junior high, high school, things started changing. So from 1985 up into the early 2000s, traveling preachers would often, or at least sometimes, stay in hotels, but they would still share meals with you in your homes, but they would go and sleep in a hotel. By 2005, and this is all just my own thoughts. I didn't research this, okay? There's no evidence to support anything I'm saying other than colloquial evidence in my head, all right? But by about 2005, Hotel expectations, uh, sorry, hotel stays were expectations. If a preacher was coming, then it was expected that you put him up in a hotel. And as a missionary who traveled to 72 churches in 2005, um, I enjoyed those hotels. I'll just be frank. And, and oftentimes I was disappointed because I was so tired of interacting with, with so many people, I just needed that respite in a hotel, and so I didn't want to go and stay in someone's home. But that's part of the problem. Because I didn't really get to know them. So hotel stays were expectations, and then some of the meals were shared. But since 2015 moving forward, what I've noticed since being back here as your pastor these last nine and a half years, um, most guests, most guest speakers show up just before the service begins and may be willing to stick around and eat lunch with the host um, before they hit the road and get on their way. That's what hospitality looks like now. Folks, the pace and expectations of our culture today has destroyed the ability to really connect with people. We opt for privacy and convenience over fellowship and service. So what do we do about it? You know, there's something special about having people in your home to share a meal or even to spend a day or two or seven, <laughs> you know, whatever. There's something special about that time. You are able to connect in ways that you would not otherwise be able to connect when you have someone sitting around your table. That's one of the best things about community groups, isn't it? We get to go in each other's homes and, and spend time there and learn where they keep their silverware and things like that, you know? Um, I wonder, though. I mean, our hosts are great. I, I'm so thankful for the ones that host community groups. But I, but I wonder, would you be willing to open up your home for a community group? Maybe give some of these other hosts a break, you know? 
Or maybe, maybe you're not ready to host a community group, but would you just be willing maybe to invite some friends over to come to your house and eat dinner? Why, Brother Wade? Just because. Just to connect. And I'm not looking for dinner invitations, okay? Just to clarify. Some of you have given us invitations to come and be in your home. And you know what? Those times are special with you. And those of you who I've been in your homes and shared meals, it's, it's a blessing. But I'm talking about all of us. Reach out to somebody and connect with them by having them come and be with you. You know, it's one thing. You could take them out to dinner, and that's great. I understand. But something different and something special to have them in your house. And can I just add quickly, nobody is perfect when it comes to hospitality. Ladies, I don't care if your house is not exactly the way you want it. Joanna, I don't care if the house is not exactly the way you want it. She cares. And she does an immaculate job of keeping our home. Um, there is no perfect person when it comes to hospitality. That's why Paul said, seek to show hospitality. Or the way another translator put it, aspire to hospitality. None of us are going to get it right. Not, none of us are going to get it perfect, but it will be right. It'll be good enough, and it'll be great for that connection. Therefore, living in light of truth, the truth that we've looked at today, what do we need to do in this area of being generous? Well, folks, I think we need to be generous with what God has blessed us with. But we also need to be gracious when others try to bless us. Also, we need to be generous in opening our lives to others. Opening our homes to others. We need to be generous. But we also need to be gracious to others by accepting some of those invitations. I want to leave you today with the words that Peter wrote that we read just a few minutes ago. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have shown us today from your word. And Father, now I just pray that you would help us Help us to open up our hearts and our homes and our lives to others. Help us to be generous with what you've provided for us. Help us to be gracious if we are the ones who are in need. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving me these people that are sitting in this room today to share life with.
Lord, help me to be better in that area of sharing. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.